Hello listeners, welcome back to the Founders Club podcast. Today my guest is Maya Voyer, founder of a business consultancy on the mission to empower teams and individuals with actionable knowledge and tools to achieve their growth targets. Maya is a growth marketing and digital transformation expert who takes a real-world results approach to empowering teams and organizations. Her early career accomplishments include constructing the best-selling online course on growth hacking in the world used by 50,000-plus students and organizations like Tesla, IBM, and Booking.com from 2017 to the present. She also agreed an official partnership with Sean Ellis and GrowthHackers.com to promote growth hacking in Europe since 2019. Currently, she manages digital projects for world-class companies like Google, Rocket Internet, and many other companies. So please enjoy this wide-range conversation with this founder. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Founders Club podcast. Today, my guest is Maya Voy, founder of a business consultancy and a mission to empower teams and individuals with actionable knowledge and tools to achieve their growth targets. Maya, welcome to the Founders Club podcast. Thanks for having me, Georgia. Totally excited to speak to this entrepreneurial community of yours. Heard that there are a lot of experts listening to this. So I really hope that we can like bring this debate internationally. And uh, nice introduction, man. I mean, uh, you have obviously gone through my LinkedIn, which is fantastic. Uh, just like two things that I would first I like to add up. Um, so I am co-instructing a Udemy course about growth hacking and digital marketing with 50,000 students and it's one of the best sellers. So I'm pretty familiar with the subject that we will talk about today. <laughs> Love the community. I've been doing that for three years. Uh, it's such an important part of my life and the mission. And professional-wise, I've been working with more than 200 companies to kick off their growth hacking process to just like get the ball rolling. So um, I have my hands dirty you know i've seen it all <laughs> and i'm eager to say, share some very 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 like hands-on insight with you in this podcast so that's where actually i was willing to start with our conversation with a bit of self-introduction and your background and obviously we're, what we're going to talk today is growth hacking and uh, as you mentioned before you have a course on udemy which is one of the most successful when it comes to growth hacking. And that's actually how I reached to you because I did that course okay. and it was amazing. And thank All you right. for- All right, super good to hear that. I'm always like a little bit anxious with professional who are as experienced as you. So, you know, it's very like, tough to please them all because the variety of people is so broad. So just like the fact that you liked it means so much to me that I can add value. Yeah, it was in early 2009, no, late, early 2000, sorry, early 2019 when I was um, looking for some uh, growth hacking courses and to see what uh, other people are doing. And, but the the origin story was the famous uh, book maybe uh, that we maybe we can introduce it as well of hacking growth by Chanel is that I know that you has also, you have also some familiarity with him and probably you worked with him as well so let's go a little bit uh, backwards and start a little a little bit with the origin story of you going into growth hacking and 
uh, yeah, let's start from there and then maybe explain what is growth hacking. All right. Um, so growth hacking is a process of fast experimentation throughout different market channels, tweaking the product as well as trying out new audiences and new segments in order to find like the best ways to grow your company. Uh, three things are absolutely uh, crucial here. So it's a fast process. It's not as if you are planning a marketing campaign for six months and then like reverse engineering what startup channels did bring you traffic. Mm -mm. Things are moving fast. Uh, the second part is just like it is like done throughout the funnel, right? So it's not just like this advertising, top of the funnel, awareness, PR thingy, but you are moving down the product and just like making sure that uh, retention is tackled and that people are like optimized in terms of how much are they spending. So it's a holistic view of business. And the thing that gets like neglected again and again is just like sustainable way to grow business, which is super important and was emphasized by Sean Ellis because sometimes, you know, if you're boosting one metrics, for example, number of users, and then like those users are shit and they don't like fully activate on your product, uh, you are doing yourself no favor so you should definitely keep in mind this holistic view um what you are trying to achieve we'll touch on that like later on in this podcast uh but just like very 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 important emphasize here it's not like 70 growth hacks how to be number one seo listed website uh it's a process it's like usage of scientific method in your business so this is what it's all about no silver bullets Right. Yeah. Many, many founders, uh, it's, it's hard to implement a growth hacking team and Extremely. process at the same time, because many founders start to look at the metrics that are, uh, not re really relevant to, to the business. Uh, but how did you came in to get involved in this world of growth hacking? What is the origin story? By needing something by needing something as always like every entrepreneur <laughs> so listen in 2015 i had like a project to launch with a couple of my friends here in ljubljana and we were aiming to collect like 150,000 dollars on uh, kickstarter and it was kind of scary for me because it was the first project marketed to the United States and geez, I've never been there. Like I have no idea what these people want, what they need, what channels do they use. They just told me that advertising is crazily expensive. That was five years ago. Um, later on, um, I just like browsed through Udemy and just like trying to empower myself because I felt so deeply frustrated. Um, you know, I'm not the youngest person in this planet. I'm 32. So when I was in college, like marketing was taught through filler Kotler's books, and it was basically how to do advertising for washing powders through television. Right. Digital was non-existent at the moment. Hope that changed. I'm sure it has changed. I'm doing some work with teaching myself in order to achieve that. But other than that, I mean, I was just like so frustrated because like all the knowledge and all the projects that I've did before were so tremendously different. And I needed something that will help uh, me get my shit together and just like make sure that this project is a success. So I found growth hacking and what personally attracted me the most about it is risk uh, dispersion, meaning that you are not putting all the eggs into a single basket, right? Like we made this joke before that you are not planning this huge marketing campaign for a year in advance. Imagine that with Corona. Um, 
Yeah, but you are like letting yourself more space to explore and just like sequentially doing stuff, which makes a lot of sense in these turbulent times whatsoever. I cannot get like enough workshops in this week because everybody's like super interested in the field. The one thing that they acknowledge is that um, business has changed dramatically and so should their growth and marketing operation. So I found this Udemy course that I now co-teach. <laughs> I took it. I I loved it and implemented all that I learned there and it worked magically. After then, I developed like a case study. I presented it on LinkedIn. So how we raised this money on Kickstarter and my co-instructor, Davis Jones from Easel, loved it. Um, he has kept in touch with me as I went to Belgium and to the Netherlands to just like study this area a little bit further because back then in Slovenia, you know, there was not uh, anything going on in that area. (laughs) So I had to go like to more developed economies in order to absorb more knowledge and just like get some hands-on experience. And the rest I would say is history. So in 2017, I started to co-teach the Udemy course and um, I have to walk the talk, you know, I have to be there. I have to implement myself because otherwise I don't have the privilege to teach. It's just like stupid if you don't have any hands-on experience and you are just like lecturing something that you stole from somebody else. So the curriculums that I'm developing are always closely connected to my project and I am like tweaking them nonstop. Uh, This is my respect for the audience. So ever since then, I've been doing a lot of projects, Um, was lucky to work like on projects with Google and Rocket Internet as well. Um, But yeah, an enormous amount of smaller companies because um, I love working with smaller companies for one simple reason. They are very agile and they don't need 1,000 approvals to get shit done. So usually we are very quick and effective. (laughs) Don't want to go too much into the nitty gritty, but yeah, this is how I developed the consultancy that um, I'm still very much engaged in. All right. So obviously, growth hacking is a process or a movement that started in the US. Sean, Hall, Sean Ellis was the pioneer of it. And it's a natural because that's where the most of innovative startups come from. And um, I wanted to, to, to talk with you about uh, implementing growth hacking and getting the timing right to form a team and implement strategies, growth hacking strategies in the life cycle of a startup is, is really crucial. How do you know when is the right time to form a growth hacking team and implement growth hacking strategies? All right, so let me get back to Sean because he's one of my favorite people on the entire planet and I am I was lucky, no, I was thrilled to spend one hour and a half this week talking to him, which is such a beautiful intellectual gift and a fantastic time to record this podcast as well, because he gave me a couple of very, very, very good insights that um, I am eager to share. So uh, when Sean like did this legendary Dropbox referral system, right, the initial grow hack, uh, yeah. it was like 2010 maybe, so it was a while ago. But the discipline itself, like it's pretty young compared with like online marketing or digital marketing. So a lot of things are still changing. And the first stuff, like he actually gave me some sort of mentorship in this advice, um, is he said to me, don't be so dogmatic. So there is a book, a wonderful book that he wrote. Uh, it's called Hacking Growth and heard that it is bestseller in China as the well. The Bible. <laughs> 
the Bible. <laughs> Sorry? It's the Bible of growth ha- oh, hacking. Of yeah, growth yeah, yeah. Hacking. It's, it's phenomenal. So it was like printed in 2017 and it will like be the Bible for some years to come again, for sure. Um, co-author is uh, Morgan Brown. Definitely need him um, to give him credits as well. But you have like very nicely explained how to do the process there and how to run like growth sprints and everything. And um, initially, you know, it's like with young people who are like copying their role models. You would like to be like them, so you are taking their diets, you are buying the brands that they are using, but uh, ultimately, companies should find a way that work for them. I had like a very, very, very uh, big hiccup the other week with one of the companies that I'm working with regarding the prioritization system. Uh, let me just take you through how the system is done so that this will make sense to the audience who is maybe not familiar with the methodology for, per se. Let's do it. So how we are doing stuff is that we are like tackling a metric that needs to be improved in order to like move the needle in business and we first do that by doing an ideation exercise meaning that you get people who are like in familiar with what is going on on the market in the same room as well as making sure that those people are interdisciplinary so definitely invite your sales people and customer support people there as well don't just like be there as your product team because you are working too much in silence anyway and you are just like figuring out hypotheses and ideas how to correct a certain metric that you are tackling later on those ideas due to the limited amount of resources, time and money, that is, need to be prioritized. And for prioritization, we are using a very simple framework called ICE. That simply means impact. So how big of an impact is this going to have on a metric that we are tackling? The second part is um, confidence. Basically, my gut feeling whether something is going to work or not. And yeah, and that could be biased sometimes, I have to recognize. <laughs> Yeah, that's my favorite one. Uh, I'm just like feeling so optimistic all the time. I remember, <laughs> I remember, I remember when when we were doing um, on the on the impact uh, of of trying to understand what would be the impact, and everybody was like, "Oh, you basically using to some degree the gut feeling. Oh, I think it'll be seven. I think it'll be six. You know, it's it's and sometimes it's kind of difficult to." It's tremendously hard, especially in German-speaking areas when people are just like used to have more structure and they would like to have some benchmarks how to like approach right. such estimations. So I've seen prioritization meetings that I kid you not took four hours because everybody was just like wildly discussing everything and it was such a painful and frustrating experience. Uh, but people find much better consensus about the third letter of the ice so it is meaning how quickly and cheap can something be developed right right so, so that we are not overdoing things and yeah, ease of implementation that prioritization um, framework that helps us get started and after having like a very 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 painful prioritization process with one of my companies um i just like went back to sean and say hello what pointers can i give them um in order to help them navigate this space and he answered something that i'll never forget it's just a guess. <laughs> it doesn't matter like whether you have like this surgical consensus about stuff. The thing is that it shouldn't be paralyzing you. It's here to empower you, to help you decide what to launch first. It's not like 
an ad, it doesn't val, add value to business per se. So that was like this don't be so dogmatic thing. So, so it's, um, it's if, they, if I may mm-hmm. pause you one second. So it's sure, a guess, a guess, but to some degree, it's this guess is dictated by one specific metric that maybe we can talk later on, which, which Sean coined the term North Star metric, if I'm not wrong. Is it, is it that correct? So you prioritize uh, uh, and okay. You... So yeah, just like in terms of measuring system, you are talking about like this north star metric that we can dive into. Absolutely no problem. But when you have like this experimentation cycle, which I'm explaining right now, mm-hmm. you are tackling like an objective. So right. a metric that is connected with a business objective. So it's a smaller part of north star metric because right. north star metric does never change. Whereas right. like our experimentation cycles can one around probation rate optimization on the landing page then we put and figure it out that people don't spend too uh, enough money on the platform right. and we need some intention tweaks so that changes but the north star never changes right north star um, magic it's, it's something exactly something that stays there you always look at it and you try to make guesses and prediction based on having in mind that store north star metric right go ahead sorry yeah, for interrupting like definitely an important concept to um incorporate in um, your experimentation process. And um, yeah, we'll, we will go to this later because I would just like to uh, close the circle. Perfect, let's do it. <laughs> so we ideated, we generated ideas how to move like a certain metric, then we prioritize them, right? This is where we stopped. Then you have to go out and actually launch the tests. And here, two questions inevitably pop in. So how big should my sample size be? How long should I be running experiments? And okay, there is a third question. How many experiments should I be running? And I need to answer that for the sake of clarity. So when it comes to experimentation, um, the uh, thumb rule is that you should be like using stuff that is statistically valid, right? So if you have a very low volume um, of traffic on your website, probably some super advanced multivariate testing is not for you. Because um, if you go like to online calculators, I did that one for a client, it was very funny when they uh, asked me to run an A-B test. And to be statistically significant, that test should last like three years. So bottom line, (laughs) to just like show them that like with the current sample size, it's impossible to do anything smart in that perspective. So um, when you plan experiments with businesses who have like smaller traffic size, definitely like make bigger changes and um, just like be more bold in testing because doing tweaks as if like whether I change this button color to orange uh, one will move the needle. So this is something that you should take into consideration. Uh, The second question that inevitably like gets asked is how many experiments should I be running? So with the majority of teams that we are starting to work with, uh, we launch, like we reach a consensus that something like free experiment should be run per week, right? But the best companies in this world are running thousands of experiments at the same time, not per week. Amazon doesn't even know how many experiments are they running. And there are currently more versions of booking.com alive than ever people lived on this planet. So the velocity of automated testing is a lot. For Facebook, same. They're running like 
thousands of experiments and thousands of versions of Facebook in different areas. And it's when I was listening uh, to Mark uh, Zuckerberg on one of the podcasts, I think it was uh, uh, Scale, something like that, of podcast of Red Hoffman. And he was like mentioning, well, we run thousands of thousands of experiments with thousands, maybe one experiment or with 1,000 users. But obviously, we are not Facebook and we don't have the same amount of users and we cannot afford. Uh, but yeah, what would be the right amount of users to run significantly import, uh, significant experiments that have a validity? Uh, it depends on like what sort of an impact are you ex um, expecting from the experiment. So how like big the change in conversion rate will be. And I'm always encouraging people to just like go on their online calculators and just like write stuff down and they will get their answers, specific answers immediately. There are some like over the time so a lot of answers so like you shouldn't be running an a b test if you cannot get more than thousand people per uh, per uh, of traffic per variation or 100 conversions but these are pushed at estimates you're just like basically saying hey if your website doesn't have thousand people in a week <laughs> then you should probably not be running a b tests mm -hmm. uh, so that's more like a scoping mechanism where a specific should be determined on a case that we are tackling right so uh, about the velocity though um so we start with the companies who are just like launching two or three experiments per week to just like make sure that we know how to systemize hypotheses and that um responsibilities are clearly assigned right because i don't want to overwhelm them at the beginning but something should be considered anyways. So approximately like global measurement of this is 25% of experiments that's a global measure are successful. So meaning that like you will get two wins out of 10 experiments that you are running. Otherwise you are just like making experiments which are not bold enough or should be testing your product backlog. So that's sort of a norm. And imagine that, especially in the beginning when it comes to managerial buy-in of the growth process, right? If you are going to launch like free experiments per week, that's maybe like 12 a month and you will only have one one or two wins per month. Will that be enough to get like the uh, money flowing into your department? I don't think so. So whereas we are very frank at communicating that at the beginning we are focusing on the methodology, uh, we are strongly encouraging people to generate first wins as soon as possible because this is how the buy-in happens. Um, and that's important because otherwise we don't get resources to continue the growth operation. In terms of uh, responsibilities and building uh, a team and which responsibilities uh, uh, the individuals of a team should have, what are the skills and the mindset that those people should adapt? But also not only at individual level, but also at a uh, company level, at a startup level. Yeah, sure. So there is like 
a lot of wonderful literature around this uh, when it comes to organizational mindset. Uh, the rock star here is Stefan Tomke. Uh, he wrote, uh, he's a HBR professor, so Harvard Business Review, and he wrote a fantastic book about culture of experimentations, how the best companies are experiment fast. Uh, I would just like focus on three very crucial things here that need to be like aligned with organizational comfort, um, culture. First one is we are okay with taking risks, meaning that people will not get penalized if they are doing stuff wrong, that they are not afraid to suggest things. And it also like hits the bonuses and compensations. Some of the teams that I work with have number of experiments in their OKRs in their key results. So how many experiments should be the, they be launching? So it's important to organizationally align people around that. In terms of um, like building a growth team per se, how do you get organized? Um, usually you will get like this crazy graphic, which is called T-shaped marketer. So meaning that somebody should know a bunch of things like storytelling, conversion rate optimization, programming, data science, and whatnot. There are like 30 quadrants that you can choose from, but the majority of companies are just like building growth teams because like unicorns who have these 30 uh, skills in their skill sets are rare or too expensive. Um, so how people actually got this done in practice is that they are bringing in together people who have key competencies in order to execute experiments. Usually this is marketing. This is almost in every growth team. Uh, a lot of times product managers join in as well and they make kick-ass head of growth because they are very much familiar with agile terminal, uh, methodologies and they have like a lot of knowledge around product. So that's definitely a good addition to the team. I never, ever, ever advise a team not to have a developer and designer because otherwise you would get into these um, wheels of approvals and backlogs and whatnot. And if you want to launch an experiment maybe somebody uh outsourced a developer in belarus will have time to launch it in three uh, months so you don't <laughs> want to do that you want to have an execution capacity right um so that's really important as well and last but not least um a lot of times especially these days conversion rate specialists and data scientists are also joining the teams um analytics is a very 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 tricky area because as we start working with people usually they don't have like like a, center, a single source of truth, meaning that um, they don't necessarily know what is going on in their business. Multiple data sources tell you different stories. Um, and that's extremely challenging uh, when you are implementing growth. I would personally go as far and say, don't do growth before you fix your analytics, before you know what data are you um, monitoring and where you are getting them from. Um, like you can do stuff with growth mentality so that you are like moving fast and breaking things, but you cannot talk about any statistical significance whatsoever and it will hunt you down as you will try to analyze experiments and you'll find them inconclusive or just like very, very, very difficult to tackle. Uh, so that's important as well. And in terms of like growth teams per se, um, I usually recommend them to have uh, once a, a week, a weekly meeting where uh, there is a very, very firm agenda that we can link to this podcast because I don't want to go through. I talk too much anyways. <laughs> so yeah, there is an agenda and it lasts for one hour. And basically we are reviewing results there and nominating what idea should we be doing in next sprint. 
from company to company, sprint length varies. So we have sometimes weekly sprints, sometimes bi-weekly sprints. Um, and what else varies, at least here in Europe, is whether people work in growth full-time or is it just like a side project. And you have to be careful here as a person who is endorsing growth in the organization. Uh, you don't want to have two types of people in your growth team. One is called HIPOS, so highest first paid person in the room opinion because that person will just dominate all the meetings and everybody will agree with him or her. So that can be like pretty dangerous, especially here in Europe when we have a little bit of an issue with hierarchy. <laughs> the second stuff that you don't want to have in your growth team are just like people who haven't fit anywhere else in the company and have some spare capacities, not necessarily the skill set, and they want to place them somewhere so that's extremely difficult to get to the operational level in a very short window of time so yeah you should be definitely careful about this um i had somebody's wife in a growth team once and she was a lovely woman like in terms of snacks she did an amazing job but um it was very 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 difficult on meetings because like we had to explain her things right she thought that she will be learning marketing by joining growth team and that's like a serious um misusage of growth team resources that are very stretched in early days and you need to make sure that you have people who can independently perform tasks there that's supremely important uh this is how you set up your grounds right um just to underscore one element that you mentioned uh, during the conversation uh, okrs are objective key results and are a way for companies to um, set up objectives and then uh, tie the, those objectives to key results. And though usually those key results are uh, tied to a specific number and they are done on monthly or every three months. It depends every, and it was invented by Andy Groove, I think and implemented that into it, if I'm not wrong. I'm, I'm digging into this because I'm also... Like, I just like, it's, the book is called uh, Me Measure What Matters by John Doerr, exactly. Yeah, and I'm fascinated by this because I'm, I'm starting to dig more uh, into OKRs and uh, I was fascinated by, uh, by the power of this, um, this methodology or this way to set up objectives. And going back to uh, talking about growth hacking, I wanted to maybe go back to two points about timing. And I think also Sean talked in his book that implementing oh, yeah. growth hacking uh, too early uh, in a startup could be uh, counterproductive. Uh, and that totally. is defined by the product that you have. If you don't reach product market fit and you implement uh, growth hacking, it could be counterproductive. It could be a waste of time and resources. So I want to, maybe you talk a little bit, how do you know if you reach product market fit? Because Sean is the only one who actually came with a, 
a specific way to measure uh, product market fit, whereas many people uh, give good definition of what product market fit, like uh, Mark Andreessen or Paul Graham, Sam, Sam Altman and so on, but Sean Ellis was the one who came with a way to actually measure it. So I want to talk, maybe you go there a little bit and talk about that. So according to Sean Ellis, um, I mean, the product market fit survey, uh, so how would you feel if this product no longer existed will help you determine if you have enough um, enough product market fit or not yet. So how many people would be missing you if you no longer existed? Huh? Quite dramatic. Um, the <laughs> other thing that I talked with him was that like a company before considering doing anything growth related should have like 100, at least 100 people that absolutely love them. Uh, what I'm personally leaning towards and here I have like tremendous fights with everybody in the industry uh, because I am community first and I just like am a firm believer in a theory of 1000 true fans. Mm. So if you build like a community of people who just like resonate with your messages and like raise your early adopters, then like when you are launching something out of those 1000, probably like 100 will inevitably buy from you because you provided them so much value before, right? Um, but that's not like the lean startup methodology that we have in mind. And there are so many better ways how to tackle this. I mean, there is design thinking, there are product sprints, there are like awesome methodologies learned from product and design. So uh, in terms of growth, um, the consensus in the industry is that you should be doing it post-product market fit. Uh, but the exact numbers, I mean, to me, they are a little bit unfair. Why? Because if somebody is working on a smaller market, for example, if you have 100 paying customers here in Slovenia, you're a rock star. <laughs> if you have them in the USA, you can probably not pay your electricity bills. Um, so I wouldn't go with any absolute numbers whatsoever. Um, the survey that Sean invented is, of course, a nice um, measurement tool how to establish that. Um, but there is like so much better uh literature from Steve Blank and uh, Eric Ries and uh, the lean startup mentors who can teach you this, that you don't really uh, need us, our growth folks, to discuss that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think, I think Sean, the research he did was more um, within the American startup ecosystem where the scale is higher than, say, a startup in Italy or in Europe. And the benchmark was uh, pretty, I think 40% of people who got interviewed, they got, yeah, I, I would die if I would not be, I'll be really disappointed if I would not be able to use the product. Uh, in terms of, of team, and we were talking before, and rallying the team, putting the team together, um, every company should have a North Start metric. Can we talk about that and how should startups identify their uh, startup, uh, they, their North Star, Nord Star metric. And if you can also give some good examples, that would be super awesome. Yeah, sure. Uh, let me do that. And uh, then we should like slowly um, cut it off because um, I got around to another meeting at um, like 10 minutes. Uh, so yeah, I would totally appreciate uh, this question about North Star metric. Um, so that's like, the most valuable 
metric in the business per se. Why? Because it helps us align people around something that they actually understand, right? What is wrong, profoundly wrong with key results and objective is that sometimes they are beyond somebody's individual scope. So it's very difficult to internalize them. And uh, sometimes they are not that encouraging to people because they are just like freaking them off whether they are going to be achieved or not. Unlike OKR, the North Star metric is meant to measure how much of a value are you delivering as a business to your customer? And let's be super specific here. So examples of very good North Star metrics are the following. On Facebook, you have daily active users. Why? Because if Georgia doesn't post shit on Facebook, I will probably lose interest in going there myself. <laughs> you need people to post stuff, to be active in order to attract other people, right? And that's extremely important because if we are both active, we are getting this tremendous value out of the ecosystem and we enjoy our experience and we are talking to other people that they should join as well. The same applies on like marketplaces where uh, like this North Star metric, for example, in the case of Uber or Airbnb, is a wonderful indication of the value provided throughout the platform, meaning for drivers as well as the passengers, right? And for Uber or for Airbnb, a wonderful North Star metric should be number of rides or number of um, nights booked for Airbnb, because these are the transaction. If right. there is like a right, uh, driver wins as well as like you are doing well in terms of customers, they have a nice experience. And um, this metric is sometimes super difficult to choose. I mean, I had like an e-commerce company and they were like struggling between number of revenue or number of units. Um, it's valuable to uh, to choose it. Um, and there is like a wonderful person that can help you with. Um, I booked her a couple of times myself. Um, she is Dani Hart and she has a profile at growthmentors.com. Uh, she has been do, uh, working with Sean for more than three years uh, as he was CEO of growthhackers.com. And I believe that she's like one of the most competent people to help you define what your North Star is. And you can do this like on a simple consultation if you are in any sort of dilemma. Sometimes it's easy. So for example, on Medium, you have number of minutes read because that's good for the paying subscribers. That's good for the authors. So as long as platform is being used um, and we are scrolling, everything is going great then. Um, and the other like key attitude of North Star metric is that if you like influence it, it benefits your entire funnel, right? So if there are more people joining Facebook, for example, the content gets better, referrals will take off, um, I will have more reasons to come back myself and be activated and then retain. So it's a very, very, very good signal that brings together your organization. And as if in OKR, imagine that all like the other key objectives and results would be aligned to feeling this North Star metric, right? So that's like the queen of your organizational culture. Uh, that's amazing. 
I wish we could talk more about uh, <laughs> about this, not so about we we didn't no, no, talk. definitely interview Danny. Like just like reach out to her and record like a short LinkedIn video or something like that because she's the best. Like I've seen her uh, running workshops, helping people like going through their um, examples. So uh, she's the one. Yeah, uh, one thing we didn't touch, but I hope we could do another episode. It's about the funnel and about the different metrics within the funnel. But um, I know you have to run, so I have last one last question for you. How can people uh, find more about you and what do you do or where they can reach to you? Cool. Um, since I have like four more minutes, um, let me just like very, very, very insightfully give you a couple of tips um, how you can try growth hacking in your organization, right? Um, as we talked before, uh, usually like we are early adopters and we should be role models for our organization. So it's not as if you would be this manager, listen, I so heard in the conference that every blue button has to be make happen tomorrow ciao um so you have to be data driven and you need to present your um ideas as hypotheses not like listen um ego is a strong enemy and sometimes in the managerial world it's very difficult for people who are usually well paid to just like comprehend that they don't know anything but knowledge is a collection of very old experiences that we have in our life uh, so either from reading from previous work and in situations such as we live these days like there is more unknown as known per se uh, it's difficult like it's very difficult to say this um, on an individual level because everybody likes to feel needed and respected so just like to say i don't know let's try it uh, let's test it out um, let's leave these options open is so important in terms of culture and just like securing the success of your growth operation so this is the mindset part um, how you get shit done in practice uh, it usually happens like very guerrilla there is somebody uh, often from the development department or product people who can just like independently execute stuff that build something and then like suddenly it becomes a tremendous success and people get alerts wow that actually works you develop this in two days i cannot believe it made so much money for the company we should definitely try to create a system that would help us produce more of this stuff so that's like a total guerrilla approach uh, you just like build your own garden of success you present some case studies that you did um, but at the beginning at least um, there are a lot of like hands-on work so stuff that you should be doing individually um, sometimes people help themselves with agencies with consultants with other peers from the company so it's not as if you would have to do the product from the code to the user experience yourself it's just like make sure that it is like this impactful thing that can be measured quickly um, nevertheless um, you should really 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 be careful um, as Sean said to me to not be too dogmatic to be like statistically significant yes and to be like honest about what's working and what's not um, but in terms of system there isn't like one size that fits all right you can compare that with exercise for example Giorgio what's your favorite sport my favorite sports uh, currently yes. it's running by myself in, during the COVID How era 
<laughs> that's cool. That's cool. I like uh, to lift kettlebells and stuff. I'm really very much into this. Um, so like there isn't a single sport that would attract us both. Right. And that's okay. I mean, we are still both very active people. We are doing like uh, good, something good for our health, but we don't necessarily have to go and copy paste what you're doing to my life because eventually you should find the thing that works for you as well. And that is the beauty of experimentation process per se, because you can apply it in your personal life as well. For example, like if you cannot sleep, then you should just like form side hypothesis. Um, I drink coffee at freaking 7 p.m. I am <laughs> stress with my work um then like uh i have a partner who's binge watching netflix when i'm sleeping and you're just like trying to come up with some hypotheses that you can later on test in your life to actually come with a reasonable conclusion so growth is so much more than something we do in business it's like it can be projected on so many different levels and once you fully embrace it it's humbling and totally cool because you become this stoic relativist you know like you do you <laughs> stuff that you are doing are great inspiration but i cannot just copy paste them for my business i have to go out and test stuff myself and maybe will work maybe will not work it depends and the very last advice don't take anything personal they're just numbers. They are just like failed experiments. You are not a bad person if you are failing the experiments. So just like get your shit together and acknowledge that um, in order to be successful in the long term, you have to have some learnings that will maybe be served a little bit cold, but in the long run, they will be very, very beneficial for your development. Right. So on that note, uh, one last thing that you haven't mentioned, where can people find you and where, where, how they can reach to you directly? That's the second time that happened, man. I forgot one of your questions. So yeah, um, I hate emails. Um, it's a common fact. Um, so I have this terrible joke whenever you send me an email, a kitten dies. Um, so please don't send me emails, but I'm happy to receive LinkedIn messages and Instagram messages. It's just like with the email, um, I'm developing like a little paranoia with my inbox. It's a bad relationship. It's a toxic one. So social media, fantastic. I love you forever, but avoid email if possible. Thank you so very much. Okay. Uh, hopefully the listeners won't send you any email or they reach... Hope they reached you on LinkedIn. But I need to know what is your Instagram because I don't have you there. If you want me to reach oh, there no directly. Worries, no worries. It's uh, Maya Voyer, like same as uh, my name. Um, and for those of you who would like to like learn more about road hacking, we've brought in some awesome recommendations. So totally happy that Giorgio is our alumni on Udemy course. You can get this for like 10 or 15 bucks, eight hours of content, totally available to everybody. Um, that's like an nice way to start then we have Sean's book uh, we mentioned uh, Stephen Tomke right so we have a bunch of experiment uh, of cool literature to get you covered and if you need like more guidance or more explanation for it you are like very welcome to reach out um, and I think Georgia is getting into the space as well so maybe follow him on LinkedIn because I think that he got hyped today <laughs> I did. And I'm looking forward to uh, add you on Instagram and exchange fitness uh, experiments. <laughs> yeah, you will be disappointed. Most of the time, I'm just like snapping the dog. <laughs> I'm experimenting with yeah, that's cool. I'm experimenting with ketogenic <laughs> diet. So I'll let you know how it goes. I'm on the third week already. <laughs>
Anyway, Maya, thank you very much for joining the Founders Club podcast. It was amazing. It was amazing. Hope your audience enjoyed it and have a very, very nice day. Ciao, guys. Bye. Ciao. Bye.